You know, it's only by God's grace and mercy that we're able to even be here today, to be together like this, and I never take it for granted, never take it lightly, that we can gather together and worship as we have today. And I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that you chose to worship here today at Upcountry Church. It's a privilege to worship with you, and such a blessing to have Jeff in the service with us today. And uh, what, a, what a wonderful way to experience the presence of God together. And although I rarely say it, uh, thank you to our band. You guys are amazing. Thank you for blessing us with your worship and your talent. Yeah, give them a hand. Last week, we started a new sermon series entitled No Greater Love, and we talked specifically about the steadfastness of His love. God's steadfast love is a, a covenant love, and we walked through the narrative of the friendship between David and Jonathan, which is a wonderful example of God's steadfast love that we should all have for one another. And so we're going to continue to explore some of the attributes of God's love together over the next several weeks. And we won't surely cover them all, as there are many, but we'll highlight several of these facets of the love of God, some obvious and probably some not so obvious. So today, we're going to look specifically at the subject of grace and mercy. God's love is gracious and it's merciful. Let's turn to Ephesians 2, if you have your Bibles, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. And I'm sorry that the microphone pops every once in a while. We're working on that. You know, Jesus didn't have to deal with that issue. He just got on a boat and went out on the lake and he taught. You know, have you ever been on a lake when it's quiet, like at night? You can hear voices carry for a mile. It's amazing. And Jesus clearly knew that because he would get out on a boat and float out and just talk to all the people on the shore. So we might start having our services at Lake Kiwi for the summer. I'll just get out on a boat and that'd be nice, wouldn't it? Ephesians 2, uh, this is of course part of Paul's letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. It was probably circulated to several churches, which uh, Ephesus was a port city on the west coast of Asia and home of the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was a city with a penchant for magic and the occult. And Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, most likely in Rome. Which for me, just underscores the sincerity and the authenticity of Paul's testimony. Here's a guy, locked up in prison, suffering, and he's writing letters to free Christians about the grace and mercy of God. I would like to think that we would all respond the same if we should find ourselves in similar circumstances, but I'm afraid that all too often we grumble and we complain when our lives aren't exactly comfortable or easy, don't we? I find myself griping about life and my situation many times when everything isn't going according to my plan. But here we find Paul, a prisoner, writing about the virtues of God's love and specifically about God's grace and mercy while he's locked up in prison. And another interesting note, just to be aware of, these ten verses we're going to read in the original Greek were one long sentence when they were originally written. So there's no question that this passage is all one coherent thought by Paul. Okay, So Ephesians 2 uh, verses 1 through 10, it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's, of course, Satan, who, among whom 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So just to avoid any misunderstanding here, we were all, every one of us, helpless and hopeless before God. We have no future and no hope of anything meaningful or lasting without Jesus Christ. I read these first three verses, and you know, I'm sorry for this, but they remind me of the zombie show that's on television right now. Everybody's talking about it. I've actually never seen it. But I understand that there are these zombies walking around everywhere causing general problems. The show's called Walking Dead, and according to these first three verses in Ephesians 2, that's a pretty accurate description of us before we experience what's described in the rest of the passage. We were all walking dead. No hope. No future, no purpose, just zombies going through the motions of life, okay? So let's continue in verse 4. It says, but God, and I'm so thankful for those two little words, but God, right? After reading those verses, we need some, some good news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, okay? So we experience his mercy, his grace, because he loves us. Back to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So, obviously, there's no question he loves not only his children, believers, he loves unbelievers. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Okay? Verse 5. Made us alive together in Christ... By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay? So here we have grace and mercy working together in tandem as we see so often through scripture. Although they're not the same thing, they often usually go together. So I'm going to give you the RIV version of the definitions for mercy and grace. RIV stands for Rucci Inspired Version. Mercy is not receiving something that we deserve. Grace is receiving something that we do not deserve. Okay, is that confusing? Let me say it this way. We all deserve eternal punishment for our sins. But when we place our faith... In Jesus Christ, we do not receive what we deserve. That's mercy. On the contrary, we do receive many blessings as Christians, even though we don't deserve them. That's grace. Okay? So again, mercy is not receiving something that we deserve, while grace is receiving something that we do not deserve. And the beautiful part of this is that these two amazing aspects of God's love for us are generally experienced together. It's like a package deal. God is so good to us, isn't he? All right, continue in Ephesians. Let's go uh, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. We talked about this last week. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to earn his grace and mercy, okay? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast... For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that may seem contradictory or confusing, but it's not that works don't matter. You see, works do matter. 
We were created to do good works. That's just not what saves us. And he's, he's making sure we understand that, okay? And then again to finish verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love verse 10 here because it's so settling for me. It's so comforting to know that our Father, God himself, has a plan all worked out for us ahead of time. He isn't wondering what's going to happen next. In fact, His grace not only provides for our salvation, it secures our salvation. The Greek verb in this passage for have been saved, which is the phrase that's repeated in verse 5 and then again in verse 8 for emphasis, is a verb that communicates that the Christian's salvation is fully secured. So God has a plan beforehand for us, which is full of good works for us. And for us to do and experience. Okay? That's God's grace and mercy at its best at work in our own lives. Okay? So that's a bit of an introduction to the grace and mercy that we experience as a part of God's love for us. The fact is God, God's love for us is full of His grace and mercy. And we experience those aspects of His love the moment we become followers of Christ. So it is that through grace and mercy, we progressively experience His workings in our lives, okay? And it all starts with salvation. The first and greatest act of grace in our lives is salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. It's what we just read in Ephesians 2. This is the first work of grace when we call upon the Lord, when we submit our lives to Him and begin to follow Him. We experience salvation by His grace through faith. Okay, as an example, we're going to turn to Luke, the gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, starting on verse 11. And we're going to take a look at grace and mercy in action, beginning with salvation. This is one of the best known stories in the Bible, the prodigal son. I'm sure you've all heard it many times. And we'll spend the rest of our time here this morning as our main text. And although I'm sure you're very familiar with it, hopefully we can look at this with some fresh vision today, okay, as it applies to our own lives. So Luke 15, starting in verse 11. Here we have Jesus in the middle of a series of parables that he's using to teach about God's steadfast love for us and the mercy and grace that comes with it. And he begins to tell about the prodigal son, okay? And he said there was a man... Who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Okay? That, in Jewish culture, was probably the equivalent of us saying, Hey, I hate your guts. I want my stuff. I'm leaving. It's basically what he said to his father. It's not spelled out here. Huge slap in the face to take your inheritance early and, and leave in that culture. Okay? So this was a, this was a big deal. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Again, this is a Jew. Pigs are unclean. This is like the worst job you could ever have in your life is feeding pigs. And that's exactly where he ended up. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So here we have this really well-to-do family with two sons. And in this culture, you could uh, give property from a father to a son. It could be disposed of either by will or by a gift during one's lifetime. Again, even though that, wasn't, uh, that, wasn't, uh, that was frowned upon in their culture. So the younger of the two sons decides that rather than remaining in his father's house, he'd prefer to venture out on his own to make his own way. So he takes to the world in his own wisdom and in his own strength and he makes a series of choices that are contrary to the life that he's been brought up in. He chooses to engage in the wrong activity with the wrong people in the wrong places. Activity and people and places that not only do not honor his father but in fact were diametrically opposed to the life that his father wants him to live. Okay? This entire parable is obviously a metaphor for the wayward soul. The one who chooses to rebel against our Heavenly Father. But I want to pause here and make sure that we get that part of the story. Okay? Because I think we often read this story and assume that it's referring to all non-Christians. as any unbeliever. And certainly some of the truths being taught here can be applied to unbelievers in one sense. However, to be specific, this is a man who was living with his father. In a relationship with his father. He wasn't a stranger. This was a believer, if you will, who chose to leave the fold, to leave his father's house, and squander his inheritance. So rather than applying this character to those who've never known God, we should more accurately compare this younger son to a Christian who's in relationship with the father and decides to walk away from that relationship and run to the world and make choices contrary to his father's will for him. Ultimately, he squanders away through sin and a series of bad choices his inheritance, okay? We won't take the time needed this morning to get into the doctrines of eternal security, you know, once saved, always saved, or the ability to lose one's salvation. One of the things I love about our church, I'll just be honest with you, <laughs> I really do, is the fact that we come from all different backgrounds, r religiously and otherwise. And I actually love that. It's the first Assemblies of God Church I've ever been into that's not really it's like an Assemblies of God Church. We're the most unassemblies of God Assemblies of God Church I've ever been in, in fact. And I know we're coming from all different directions on some of our doctrine, which is actually a wonderful thing because we're united by what we have in common, not, not by what we disagree on. The truth is there are compelling arguments in Scripture to support both of those viewpoints, by the way. We just read one of them in one direction in Ephesians 2 about our salvation being secure. But this is one of those stories from Jesus himself that seems to suggest the ability through our own free will to reject the Father and by our own sin lose the inheritance that we're given as children of God. Clearly this son had an inheritance and clearly he wasted it living outside the will of his Father. The other side of it, of course, is the redemptive nature of the end of the story, which we're coming to. But without question, the son seemed to be in danger of permanently losing his place in his father's house. In verse 17, he says, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here 
with hunger. Don't miss that point. He's not just, not just looking for a ham sandwich. He's dying. This is, this is a clear metaphor for the spiritual death that we experience outside our Father. Okay, Apart from His Father's love and protection and provision, He was dying. Make no mistake. And then, along comes grace and mercy. The Son comes to His senses. Verse 17 says, When He came to Himself. Which is an interesting commentary about what sin does to us. We actually become controlled by sin. You know that. We just heard Jill talking about that. We think we're making choices when we're living in communion with the world. We, we think we're self-made. We think we have it all together. But the truth is we become puppets of our enemy. We relinquish self-control and become pawns in the enemy's plan to destroy our lives when we give in and live for sin, for the world. I've mentioned this saying before and it bears repeating. Sin always takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. Verse 17 says, When he came to himself, which in and of itself, by the way, is an act of grace by the Father. And once he came to himself, he quickly decided that the only good option was to run back to the Father and plead his case for mercy and grace. So what happens next? He begins the journey back to the Father. He actually has to make his way back. Okay? He doesn't continue laying in the pigsty and just calling out, hoping that he'll be magically airlifted to safety. He gets up. He arose, verse 20 says, and came to his father. Again, don't miss this point. When we make choices that lead us away from the father and we get to a place where we're living in sin, when we come to ourselves, it has to be more than just a thought. It involves coming back to the Father. And I'm not talking about God helps those who help themselves. Okay, I hope you all understand that's not actually in the Bible. That's not a verse in Scripture. Somebody made that up. It sounds good. Proverbs 28.6 says, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. We cannot help ourselves. Only God can do what's necessary for us to be saved. But we can get up. We can arise out of our circumstances and we can run back to the Father. There's a guy, and some of you old people like me probably know who he is. His name is Stevie Ray Vaughan. He was one of my favorite musician singers of all time. He was a blues guitarist and, and a singer, an amazing musician. And I'll never forget hearing an interview with him and his band members at one point. He had a heavy addiction to drugs. And yet he knew about the Lord. And he was telling this story about how they were backstage one night before a gig. And they were doing lines of cocaine on the table. And he said, we'd fix up a line and we'd do a line of coke. And we felt really bad about it. So we'd get down on our knees and we'd repent and ask God to forgive us for our sin. And then we'd put some more coke out on the table, fix up another line and do another line. We felt so bad, we'd get down on our knees and repent, and that went on all night. And they went out and did the gig, and then did some more drugs after the gig. You see, at some point in our sin, living apart from God, we have, to, we have to actually come to ourselves. We have to wake up. We have to arise and come back to the Father. It's not just enough to think, uh, man, I need to change my life. It's not enough to feel bad. We have to work our way back to the Father. Here's the beautiful part about that. 
Verse 20 in our text says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We don't even have to get that close. He just wants you to get up and start making your way back to him. The father was waiting and watching for his son. He was ready at a moment to take the son back. You see, all we have to do is make a move toward God. And no matter how far away from him we've gone, he will run to us, embrace us. He will love us. And ultimately, what happened with the prodigal son? He was saved, right? Salvation is an act of grace that we cannot earn and do not deserve. And as a part of it, by his mercy, we're spared what we truly deserve. Okay? We just have to get up and move toward the Father. Okay, so what's next? What is the next act of grace and mercy? It's acceptance. Okay, and we'll go back to our text here. Go back to verse 21 and we'll read through verse 24. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. All that the son was looking for was salvation. He wasn't even asking or expecting full acceptance as a son again. He was just hoping to be treated as a servant in order to be saved from imminent death. Remember, he said he was dying. Verse 21, the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And although that is a true statement, the father responds with correction and love. Verse 24, he says, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. So not only was the son saved by grace and given mercy, he was fully accepted as the father's son. He was given all of the rights and privileges that go along with being a son. I can't tell you how many Christians I encounter as a pastor that readily acknowledge to me their salvation, but that's as far as it goes. That's where they stop because they cannot accept that the Father has completely accepted them as a son or daughter with all of the privileges that goes along with that. Listen to me. Once you're saved by grace through faith, you're as saved as anyone else. There's no such thing as partial salvation. There's no such thing as partial acceptance or partial sonship. If you're born again in relationship with the Father, He accepts you fully. We have to stop walking around defeated and deflated and depressed. You're a child of God. And you're now entitled to all of the privileges, all of the perks, all of the wonderful life-giving, life-sustaining attributes that come from His grace and mercy. Available to all of His children because of His great love for you. What's available to you as a child of God? Well, joy, love, peace. Confidence, assurance, faith, authority. Did you know that? We have authority as children of God. Health, endurance, provision, eternal life. If you're born again, you've been fully accepted as a child of God. You should act like it. 
By the way, that isn't ignorance. That isn't arrogance. That's authenticity. That's being who you truly are. I've been called arrogant more times than I care to think about because I tell people who I am in Christ. Hey, I'm just being authentic. I'm not being arrogant. It's the truth. Being a child of God has many benefits. I've asked Jason and Rachel Joseph, one or both of them, to come this morning and share a short testimony of what God has done in their daughter Libby's life this week. I think it's important that we share. Come on, guys. Um, we, on Tuesday, Libby started getting a rash, and I thought, oh, well, she's just had an allergic reaction to something. And I just, you know, said a simple prayer, you know, God, just heal her, you know, let the rash go away on its own. And then she, uh, and I just mentioned it to my mom in passing, and then Wednesday she woke up, and it had spread from her stomach to her arms and legs. And I was like, okay, <laughs> pray a little bit more about this, you know, God, if you could just, you know, help this rash to, to go away. And um, wasn't really too concerned about it, still just thought maybe it was allergic reaction to something. She had got a sunburn on Saturday. I thought maybe that was affecting her a little bit. And then it was Thursday um, when she woke up. It had... Um, no, it was Wednesday we took her to the doctor. Is that right? Did yeah. I take her Wednesday? Okay, so I took her to the doctor Wednesday, and I knew God was just going to heal her, but I think in my mind, I'm like, you know, if I hear it from a doctor that it's nothing, I'm going to feel just so much better about it. So um, new to the area, found a pediatrician, took her to the pediatrician, tell me what she had. Don't, you know, I had to write it down. Didn't even remember the name. It was something you'd have to spell. And um, basically she said, there's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, it'll get worse before it gets better. She, um, she, you know, she asked, she said, I told her about the sunburn. She said that wasn't it. It would usually start after 24 hours. She asked if she'd been itching herself. I said, no, any medications? No, nothing she's on. Um, if she's been sick, running a fever, none of that. Um, so they have no idea. She's like, with this, with whatever it's called, she said, sometimes they just don't know what causes it. So Wednesday, we go home, um, prayed some more about Thursday morning, it had spread to her face. And, I, you know, that day I was just like, and I, you know, she gave me the name so I could Google it. And I was like, you know what, I'm not accepting this. She told me it'd be two week minimum before the rash would go away as much as six weeks. Um, but I knew God was healing her. She, you know, she didn't have a fever, didn't run a fever once. She um, wasn't itching herself at all, which she said typically they will do. They'll just be scratching. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to accept a two-week healing time. I'm not going to accept the fact that, you know, she'll probably could possibly get scabs and have a little bit of scarring. Um, that night, I just prayed. I'm like, God, you know what? I know you're healing her, but could you just make me feel better and let me see, you know, let me see a sign um, so I would feel more comfortable about it. And I woke up Friday morning and that was her. <laughs> that was her. It wasn't just a little change. I mean, she complete, he completely took her rash away. There was maybe just a little bit left on her back that you could kind of see, but it wasn't anything at all. So, um, you know, God did that for me. <laughs> he did that for me. So. Me too. <laughs> no, Rachel. It's awesome. God is awesome. You know, once you become a son or a daughter of the king, you're fully accepted as a child of the king, heir with Jesus Christ, and we get to receive all the benefits that go along with that.
Okay, it's why we're sharing today these stories. You can see the things that God does in the life of his children. In fact, we should stop saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. I hear that all the time. It's not true. You were a sinner. Now that you've been saved by grace through faith, you're a saint of God. A child of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ to the riches of God's love and grace and mercy. That is the truth of who you are if you're a follower of Christ. You are accepted. Okay? And as we finish this point, why don't you say with me, I'm accepted. Let's say it out loud. I am accepted. Do it one more time. I am accepted. Okay? There you have it. Settled. Out of God's grace and mercy because of his great love for us. There's salvation. And there's acceptance. And thirdly, today, there's restoration. Let's go back to verse 22, and we'll, we'll finish this story of the prodigal son. But the father said to his son, to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who was devoured, who was de- excuse me, devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found." The prodigal son walked away from his father. He left everything that protected him, sheltered him, covered him, and provided for him. And he blew his inheritance on women and wine. He lived it up, and he lost it all. We know that he didn't expect acceptance. He just wanted salvation. Surely he never thought in his wildest dreams that not only... Would he be accepted, but that everything he'd lost in his sinful lifestyle would be restored back to him and then some. The gifts given to the son in verses 22 and 23 were signs of honor and authority. He was being honored as a son with full rights as an heir. And he was recognized as having authority as a son of the father. It's what those gifts meant. And shoes, by the way, in that culture were the prerogative of free men, not slaves. Okay, so the son was given honor, authority, and freedom upon his arrival at home. Can you imagine it? You'd think that the father would want the son to pay some penance or earn back his trust before you give him back his honor. Certainly his authority and most of all his freedom. Lock the kid in a room for a couple weeks. Something. Right? But that's not what happened. The father immediately upon the son's repentance restored to the son everything that he'd lost and then some. And the son had not only lost his honor and authority and freedom, he also he lost his relationship with his father, his relationship with his friends and his family. He lost his material provision, his health, his status as an heir. He lost clarity of thought. He lost sound judgment. 
He lost his whole future. Everything that he had of value was gone in the amount of time it took him to walk away from the Father and turn to a life of sin. But God. Hallelujah for those two words. The moment the Son came back to the Father, everything and more was restored to him. You see, no matter how far we wander away, no matter how long we stray from God, no matter what we squander in doing what we think is best in our life, rather than seeking the Father's will, no matter how many bad decisions we make and how far down the hole of despair we slide, the Father is always watching and waiting, always ready to save you and accept you and completely restore you and what you've lost and then some. You don't believe it. Do you believe it? Ask the prodigal son. Ask Hosea. Ask Job. He didn't even do anything wrong. Ask Ruth. Ask Abraham. Ask Joseph. Ask Naomi. Ask the Israelites. They would stray away from God and lose everything. And as soon as they would repent and come back, he would restore them. No matter how hopeless and shattered life seems, we just have to get up and run to the Father. Because in the end, he will restore what you have lost. Listen to the words of the Father in Joel chapter 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, and I'm closing, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. You see, I don't want superficial repentance. I don't want you to put on a show. Don't tear your clothes. Tear your heart open for me. Repent. Turn your heart back to God. Return to the Lord your God, for He's gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's what we've been talking about. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Man, get everybody together. Repent. Come back to the Lord. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? They are repenting. What happens when they repent? Verse 18, then, you could put in there, but God. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he's given you the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. And it just keeps getting better. 
Verse 24, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Look, I don't know everything that you're going through today or even what you've already been through. But what I do know is that no matter what you've lost, no matter what's been taken by the enemy, no matter how much attrition there's been in your life, God can and He will restore back to you all that has been lost and more if you'll simply arise and run to Him. So what have you lost? What have you lost in your marriage? What have you lost in your provision? What have you lost in your health? What have you lost in your place of authority, in your ministry, in your influence for Christ, in your freedom? Is there bondage in your future? What have you lost? Because whatever it is, if you'll run to the Father and not your own wisdom, if you will trust Him and not in men, if you will follow His will and not your own, He will restore what the locusts have eaten by His grace and mercy. Can you receive that message today from his word? Would you bow your heads with me?